0: Chapter 9 of The Story of a Bad Boy. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Story of a Bad Boy by Thomas Bailey Aldrich. Chapter 9 I Become an R.M.C. In the course of ten days I recovered sufficiently from my injuries to attend school, where for a little while I was looked upon as a hero, on account of having been blown up. What don't we make a hero of? The distraction which prevailed in the classes the week preceding the fourth had subsided, and nothing remained to indicate the recent festivities, excepting a noticeable want of eyebrows on the part of Pepper Whitcomb and myself. In August we had two weeks' vacation— It was about this time that I became a member of the Rivermouth Centipedes, a secret society composed of twelve of the Temple Grammar School boys. This was an honor to which I had long aspired, but being a new boy I was not admitted to the fraternity until my character had fully developed itself. It was a very select society, the object of which I never fathomed, though I was an active member of the body during the remainder of my residence at Rivermouth, and at one time held the onerous position of F.C., First Centipede. Each of the elect wore a copper scent, some occult association being established between a cent apiece and a centipede's, suspended by a string round his neck. The medals were worn next to the skin, and it was while bathing one day at Grave Point, with Jack Harris and Fred Langdon, that I had my curiosity roused to the highest pitch by a sight of these singular emblems. As soon as I ascertained the existence of a boys' club, of course I was ready to die to join it, and eventually I was allowed to join. The initiation ceremony took place in Fred Langdon's barn, where I was submitted to a series of trials not calculated to soothe the nerves of a timorous boy. Before being led to the Grotto of Enchantment, such was the modest title given to the loft over my friend's woodhouse, my hands were securely pinioned, and my eyes covered "'with a thick silk handkerchief. "'At the head of the stairs I was told "'in an unrecognizable husky voice "'that it was not yet too late to retreat "'if I felt myself physically too weak "'to undergo the necessary tortures. "'I replied that I was not too weak "'in a tone which I intended to be resolute, "'but which, in spite of me, "'seemed to come from the pit of my stomach. "'It is well,' said the husky voice. "'I did not feel so sure about that.' but having made up my mind to be a centipede, a centipede I was bound to be. Other boys had passed through the ordeal and lived. Why should not I? A prolonged silence followed this preliminary examination, and I was wondering what would come next when a pistol fired off close by my ear deafened me for a moment. The unknown voice then directed me to take ten steps forward and stop at the word halt. I took ten steps and halted. Stricken mortal! said a second husky voice more husky if possible than the first if you had advanced another inch you would have disappeared down an abyss three thousand feet deep i naturally shrunk back at this friendly piece of information a prick from some two-pronged instrument evidently a pitchfork gently checked my retreat i was then conducted to the brink of several other precipices and ordered to step over many dangerous chasms where the result would have been instant death if I had committed the least mistake. I have neglected to say that my movements were accompanied by dismal groans from different parts of the grotto. Finally, I was led up a steep plank to what appeared to me an incalculable height. Here I stood breathless while the by-laws were read aloud. A more extraordinary code of laws never came from the brain of man, the penalties attached to the abject being who should reveal any of the secrets of the society were enough to make the blood run cold. A second pistol shot was heard. The something I stood on sunk with a crash beneath my feet, and I fell two miles as nearly as I could compute it. At the same instant, the handkerchief was whisked from my eyes, and I found myself standing in an empty hogshead, surrounded by twelve masked figures fantastically dressed. One of the conspirators was really appalling, with a tin saucepan on his head and a tiger-skin sleigh robe thrown over his shoulders. I scarcely need say that there were no vestiges to be seen of the fearful gulfs over which I had passed so cautiously. My ascent had been to the top of the hogshead, and my descent to the bottom thereof. Holding one another by the hand and chanting a low dirge, the mystic twelve revolved about me, this concluded the ceremony. With a merry shout, the boys threw off their masks, and I was declared a regularly installed member of the RMC. I afterwards had a good deal of sport out of the club, for these initiations, as you may imagine, were sometimes very comical spectacles, especially when the aspirant for centipedal honors happened to be of a timid disposition. If he showed the slightest terror he was certain to be tricked unmercifully. One of our subsequent devices, a humble invention of my own, was to request the blindfolded candidate to put out his tongue, whereupon the first centipede would say, in a low tone, as if not intended for the ear of the victim, Diabolus, fetch me the red-hot iron. The expedition with which that tongue would disappear was simply ridiculous. Our meetings were held in various barns, at no stated periods but as circumstances suggested any member had a right to call a meeting. Each boy who failed to report himself was fined one cent. Whenever a member had reasons for thinking that another member would be unable to attend, he called a meeting. For instance, immediately on learning the death of Harry Blake's great grandfather, I issued a call. By these simple and ingenious measures we kept our treasury in a flourishing condition, sometimes having on hand as much as a dollar and a quarter, I have said that the society had no special object. It is true, there was a tacit understanding among us that the Centipedes were to stand by one another on all occasions, though I don't remember that they did; but further than this we had no purpose, unless it was to accomplish as a body the same amount of mischief which we were sure to do as individuals. To mystify the staid and slow going Rivermouthians was our frequent pleasure. Several of our pranks won us such a reputation among the townsfolk that we were credited with having a large finger in whatever went amiss in the place. One morning, about a week after my admission into the secret order, the quiet citizens awoke to find that the signboards of all the principal streets had changed places during the night. People who went trustfully to sleep in Current Square opened their eyes in Honeysuckle Terrace. Jones's Avenue at the north end had suddenly become Walnut Street and Peanut Street was nowhere to be found. Confusion reigned. The town authorities took the matter in hand without delay, and six of the Temple Grammar School boys were summoned to appear before Justice Clapham. Having tearfully disclaimed to my grandfather all knowledge of the transaction, I disappeared from the family circle, and was not apprehended until late in the afternoon, when the captain dragged me ignominiously from the Haymow, "'and conducted me more dead than alive to the office of Justice Clapham. "'Here I encountered five other pallid culprits "'who had been fished out of divers, coal bins, garrets, and chicken-coops "'to answer the demands of the outraged laws. "'Charlie Marden had hidden himself in a pile of gravel behind his father's house "'and looked like a recently exhumed mummy. "'There was not the least evidence against us, "'and indeed we were wholly innocent of the offence. The trick, as was afterwards proved, had been played by a party of soldiers stationed at the fort in the harbor. We were indebted for our arrest to Master Conway, who had slyly dropped a hint, within the hearing of Selectman Mudge, to the effect that young Bailey and his five cronies could tell something about them signs. When he was called upon to make good his assertion, he was considerably more terrified than the centipedes, though they were ready to sink into their shoes. At our next meeting, IT WAS UNANIMOUSLY RESOLVED THAT CONWAY'S ANIMOSITY SHOULD NOT BE QUIETLY SUBMITTED TO. HE HAD SOUGHT TO INFORM AGAINST US IN THE STAGECOACH BUSINESS. HE HAD VOLUNTEERED TO CARRY PETTENGILL'S LITTLE BILL FOR 24 ICE CREAMS TO CHARLIE MARDEN'S FATHER. AND NOW HE HAD CAUSED US TO BE ARRAIGNED BEFORE JUSTICE CLAPHAM ON A CHARGE EQUALLY GROUNDLESS AND PAINFUL. AFTER MUCH NOISY DISCUSSION, A PLAN OF RETALIATION WAS AGREED UPON. There was a certain slim, mild apothecary in the town by the name of Meeks. It was generally given out that Mr. Meeks had a vague desire to get married, but being a shy and timorous youth lacked the moral courage to do so. It was also well known that the widow Conway had not buried her heart with the late lamented. As to her shyness, that was not so clear. Indeed, her attentions to Mr. Meeks, whose mother she might have been, were of a nature not to be misunderstood and were not misunderstood by any one but mr meeks himself the widow carried on a dressmaking establishment at her residence on the corner opposite meeks's drug store and kept a wary eye on all the young ladies from miss dorothy gibbs's female institute who patronized the shop for soda water acid drops and slate pencils in the afternoon the widow was usually seen seated smartly dressed at her window upstairs casting destructive glances across the street, the artificial roses in her cap and her whole languishing manner saying as plainly as a label on a prescription, to be taken immediately. But Mr. Meeks didn't take. The lady's fondness and the gentleman's blindness were topics ably handled at every sewing circle in the town. It was through these two luckless individuals that we proposed to strike a blow at the common enemy. To kill less than three birds with one stone did not suit our sanguinary purpose. We disliked the widow not so much for her sentimentality as for being the mother of Bill Conway. We disliked Mr. Meeks not because he was insipid, like his own syrups, but because the widow loved him. Bill Conway we hated for himself. Late one dark Saturday night in September we carried our plan into effect on the following morning as the orderly citizens wended their way to church past the widow's abode their sober faces relaxed at beholding over her front door the well-known gilt mortar and pestle which usually stood on the top of a pole on the opposite corner while the passers on that side of the street were equally amused and scandalized at seeing a placard bearing the following announcement tacked to the druggist's window shutters wanted a sempstress the naughty cleverness of the joke which I should be sorry to defend, was recognized at once. It spread like wildfire over the town, and, though the mortar and the placard were speedily removed, our triumph was complete. The whole community was on the broad grin and our participation in the affair seemingly unsuspected. It was those wicked soldiers at the fort. End of chapter 9